welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm E. Jackson. Um, Drawing a Dialogue is a podcast discussing comics in historical and educational contexts. I am a cartoonist, educator, and scholar. And I'm a cartoonist and scholar. Today, in this episode, we are going to be talking about violence in the media, specifically in comics. Yeah. I want to just preface at least my section um, in that I am going to be talking about specific violent acts. I'm not going to get into like uh, details, but I am going to be talking about real gun violence and things like that. So if that, that's just a content warning for you. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm not going to be talking about any specific um, incidents, but I will be talking a bit about uh, trauma in, in general and like war as an act so yeah <laughs> yeah I, I think it's good to know what we're gonna start getting into yeah totally so um do we want to talk a little bit about how we arrived at this topic sure well um in episode four we talked about frederick wortham mm-hmm. and about his theories in how um violence in comic books and all sorts of other topics but violence was one of them could be affecting children's minds right so we wanted to sort of delve deeper into specifically that idea and that theory yeah and um obviously violence is a word that has like a lot of broad applications i'm going to be talking about more aesthetics of violence in comics and the ways in which comics are sort of uniquely suited for certain acts of witnessing um and i i I don't want to like go too much it's it's really hard to map out a history so to speak of violence um in comics and media in general Violent media obviously predates comics by a lot, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> to, put it, to put it lightly. So I, I, um, I think I'm going to be jumping around a little bit between some of the sources I have because um, some of them are sort of referencing each other. And then, so I guess it does make sense for us to define our usage of the word violence. Yeah. Um. Personally, when I'm talking about violence, I'm almost always, at least in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about physical harm Mm -hmm. that one person does upon another person. Right. It's not like mental violence or some definitions of violence include um, property damage. Mm -hmm. And that's not, I don't categorize that as violence. I, I think it is important to continually try to figure out what we mean by violence and what we mean by aggression and also what our sources mean because it just it changes a lot for one person to another person yeah because violence um you can be talking about like societal acts of violence you can be talking about um like individual like physical harm um Mm -hmm. usually uh in the sources that i'm dealing with um 
we're, everything is sort of speaking specifically to physical aggression and how that is depicted in media, essentially. Okay, yeah. Yeah. And that's sort of similar to uh, uh, the way that I'm going to be using it in my segment. So I guess um, I want to start by saying what what kind of drove me to want to focus on a more like a discussion about like aesthetics in violence specifically was uh, I have an article by uh, Jonathan Gabbery that is from volume six of Image Text, which is an online uh, comics academia journal. Um, called The Violence Museum, Aesthetic Wounds from Popeye to WE3. What year is this? This is from uh, 2011. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's fairly recent. Yeah, fairly recent. So uh, Gabbery in this article is discussing, he's he's framing what he's talking about around Frederick Wortham's campaign against comic book violence. Um, which is why I wanted to use it because that's a good touch point for us because we've already spent a bit of time talking about uh, Frederick Wortham in episode four. Mm-hmm. But he is not discussing whether or not comics, them, like whether or not comics are violent. Like his argument is not, the, the way he says it is um, when Wortham writes that the stories display the wounds, we need to consider the quality of the wounds rather than say that the wounds are blueprints of here's how to wound. Mm. Violence in comics should be judged on the basis of how it engages the problem of wounded iconosity in terms of symbolism and style or more broadly with aesthetics. So he is talking about the way we literally depict injury in images within comics, right? Yeah. Um, which I found like a really interesting way to kind of like frame what I'm going to be talking about. So from this article again, the Commerce Code of 1954 reflects Wortham's attention to both overt and secret states of violence. Item 7 of General Standards Part A engages in the overt. Scenes of excessive violence shall be prohibited. Scenes of brutal torture, excessive and unnecessary gun and knife play, physical agony, gory and gruesome crime shall be eliminated, whereas Item 5 engages in the secret. Criminals shall not be presented so as to be rendered glamorous or to occupy a position in which creates the desire for emulation. Excessiveness, by virtue of being excessive, is assumed to spill over the pages of the comic book into emulated action and aggression. So he's talking about um, the code, specifically, which was created after... The juvenile delinquency trials, it was a self-regulating body within the comics industry that comics, quote-unquote, had to um, follow to be approved Mm -hmm. for publication. It's obviously significantly more complicated than that, but that's the general idea. And so the code dealt specifically with things that were on the page literally and also narratively. So narrative violence, i.e. like showing criminals to be something you'd want to emulate, something you'd want to be like. Okay. Yeah. So his argument, though, is that um, the emulation itself sort of like comes within the comics itself. So uh, this is from this is a quote he's uh, citing from the Tencent Plague, which is a book um, I'm going to talk about in a little bit. The natural tendency of, of the comic book is towards the outre, exaggeration, studlier heroes, bloodier killings, pointier breasts is in the nature of the medium. Um, 
outre meaning unusual and startling. So essentially, comic books are thought of as these excessive, bloody, everything's more violent, everything's like sexier, everything's more, right? Excess. Excess and its various forms of exaggeration exist on an overt plane within the medium. Typical representations such as caricatures, the grotesque, sadistic violence, gore, etc., and on a secret plane within the medium, the tendency for creators to up the ante and depict more and more. Um, so the idea is that not only are comics something like quote unquote can be emulated by people reading them, that artists are also reacting to previous existing comic books by continually upping the the like aesthetic ante so to speak yeah and that's that's actually interesting if you think about the way we ended our last conversation um the one about the gaze Mm -hmm. and how so much of what our resources for talking about the gaze were about photo and film and how something that does need to be considered is the drawing style. Right. In when when we're talking about comic books. Right, right. Yeah. And so his his argument here is that um so he goes on to say um Intermedium excess is granted futurity because creators will still be spurred on to up the ante, and yet the possibility of extra medium excess is denied because no one, much less a child, could replicate in real life such a depicted act of ecstatic violence. So his argument is that the um, the excess, which is uh, excessive violence depicted, is what we would call aestheticized violence. Um, Mm. this excessive violence is like such that it's actually not possible to be replicated in real life because it's almost like the sublime thing that can only exist in the self-referential frame of the comic book. And who's saying this? This is Jonathan Gabbery. Oh, so this is the 2011 article. Yeah, this is the 2011 article. Oh, I'm wondering what he's ref- in reference to. He well, he like what are these violent comics that he's talking about? In this particular article, he analyzes Popeye. Um, he analyzes <laughs> he analyzes a comic from the Perry Bible Fellowship by Nicholas Gerwich. Yep, and he analyzes a little bit of Mouse. And uh, a book called We Three, W-E-3, um, which is... Okay. Uh, let me f- That's the one, only one I haven't heard of. Uh, we Three is a three-issue American comic book by Grant Morrison and Frank Quietly. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I haven't read that one either, but so I I don't want to like delve too much into like his because he's obviously like working with like specific panels and like analyzing it. Um, and the article will obviously be in the show notes. Um, yeah. So you can go and read it yourself. But I thought this was like a really interesting analysis about uh, how like this excessive violence is sort of like an aesthetic tool that works like within the medium in the sense that like we're constantly reacting to it, but um. And he's obviously specifically talking about physical aggression, violence. It can't be, like, replicated outside of the comic book. So one person against another person. Yeah, yeah, specifically. Because he does also reference, which we talked about in the Gaze episode, Women in Refrigerators, Gail Simone's website. Um, Mm -hmm. And he says, um, he's talking about that 
uh, Sim- what Simone is talking about isn't artistic emulation, but is emulation in reality in the sense that, like, the violent acts against women uh, are emulated in acts of misogyny against women IRL. IRL. In real life, that's an example of, uh, like, a societal violence, right? Um, misogyny being a form of, like, societal violence. Yeah. That can take a physical violent form, but is, like, a slightly different conversation from just um, person-on-person aggression. But just to finish out this article, um, the other thing, the the only other thing I wanted to like kind of conclude with it is um, he he uh, kind of wraps up with just as the conjunction of comics and superheroes will never be broken, neither will the conjunction of comics and violence. To go one step further and refashion the stigma, I will say that comics as a medium is impressively and ambivalently suited to to the task of carrying the full historical weight of violence. Its tools for satirizing violence and disarming naive beliefs about physical or cultural violence are often the same tools that relish invisible and invisible violence. So again, he's proposing Mm. that, and this is a thing I'm going to return to a few times in different contexts, um, that comics, the medium of comics, are uniquely suited to depict violence um, in different forms. Um, This is interesting to me because this is also something that you see uh, people say about video games and film uh, at different times. (laughs) Um, That they're uniquely... Suited. Suited to depict violence. Yeah, I have a... This is an essay uh, by Margaret Irvin Bruder called Aestheticizing Violence or How to Do Things with Style. This is about film. Uh, Gabory does actually cite this in his es- in this uh, article I just read about comics. So this is a... This is where the idea... This is sort of the, like... As far as I can tell, one of the like origins of the the idea of aestheticizing violence and that specifically meaning the way that violence in visual media is depicted in excess as excess and not only excesses in like amount of times a violent act is happening, but in using the unique tools of the medium in a way that is excessive. So she's this entire um, article, she's talking about uh, different like violent films and how violence is used in films but I found this very interesting despite the commercial appeal of film violence very few critics have found comfortable ways of discussing it historically critics tend to fall into two categories on the subject those critics who seem film violence as style as superficial and exploitative argue that it leads us to a desensitivity to brutality and thereby increase aggressivity and those who view it as content, as theme, claim it serves a cathartic or dissipating effect, providing acceptable outlets for antisocial impulses. Um, so this is an idea that comes up a lot, right? That either Wortham, for instance, fell on the side that violence in comics would desensitize us to violence, thus increasing uh, juvenile delinquency in childhood. But there are also the other argument, the other side of that coin, so to speak, is that engaging in violent media is actually a way to like assage violent urges in ourselves because instead of actually enacting those we just engage in the media and do that Mm. so i i just wanted to start out with the violence museum article to sort of frame what i want to be talking about um i also wanted to point out since that does talk about the comics code it's sort of impossible to detach a conversation about violence in comics from the comics code because that was sort of like something that puts on paper permanently that comics were a violent medium right 
Yeah. Like, once the comics code existed, it was impossible to argue that comics weren't violent. I mean, you could say that it was never possible to argue that, uh, given um, some of the comics that were in existence. But, again, comics were not necessarily any more violent than any other form of medium. Um, and I'm going to read a quote from The Tencent Plague, which is a book. Tencent Plague is a book by uh, David Hadju from um, 2008. Uh, and this quote is, um, Criticism of the 1940s and the 1950s echoed already familiar charges against the dime novels of the late 19th century, which had delivered short, readable doses of blood and thunder to a working-class readership, thereby imperiling Victorian propriety. Comic strips essentially supplant the dime novels and, in their accessibility to non-readers and the immigrant population, surpass the books in popularity. So, before comics became sort of the, like, scapegoat of violent media there was dime novels Mm -hmm. and dime novels pulp magazines they were similar like cheaply made accessible stories that were often very like excessive stylistically in depicting violence comics became more popular because you didn't have to know how to read to read a comic like you didn't have to know how to like read text yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Because yeah. you could, you can just read the images and the sequence of images, and that will help you understand the words. Yeah. yeah, you can follow. You can follow the story of a comic usually without having to understand the text that's on the page. And so they were more popular with immigrant populations. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, immigrant populations and non-readers. Cool. Yeah, which I think also you know children. People who can't, yeah. children can't always read super good yet. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so that's sort of like where this notion of comics being violent, like an inherently violent, violent media, has come from. This also is reflected in video games. Um, this sort of like modern scapegoat, right, of like a violent media. I think the video games conversation is particularly interesting because a lot of it has to do with the fact that uh, video games are considered kind of the first medium where you're partaking in the violence is participatory. So it's not just that you're reading a violent act or watching a violent act. You are technically kind of committing a violent act because you are the one manipulating the character. Okay. (laughs) That's the argument, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's why I was like, well, well, it's still against, you know, like a tiny pixel thing. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 definitely. But that's sort of like, yeah. that's why this is like upping the anti, quote unquote. I'm sure similar arguments were made about film, right? Like, oh, but you're watching it happen like a photograph. Um, yeah, yeah. And again, this is just because I'm trying to like sort of build this case about how different mediums get marginalized for being violent. Um, This is from Violent Games Rules, Realism, and Effect by Gareth uh, Schott. And this Mm -hmm. says, uh, Depas and Bill Terrest, who uh, those are media studies academic scholars, have applied and recognized influential sociological theorization to account for the ways in which the moral panic surrounding games actually res- resonate wider societal fears, but also highlight how gaming has simply been assimilated into the existing legacy of the harmful effects of media. They argue that this can be schematized in a processual model in which media violence, quote-unquote, serves as a category for grouping a wide range of disparate works. So... What he's saying here is that um, this is about games, but same can be said of film. The same can be said of comics. We ha- we've like created this concept of 
media violence, which is a big, broad term that means, like, anything, basically. And we yeah. we latch onto that as a scapegoat instead of addressing an actual societal issue with violence. Um, mm-hmm. We can put music in with that category, too. Music yes. also had its own, like, Senate hearing type thing, the same that comics had and the same that uh, video games had. Yeah, yeah. And film. Don't forget, um... Film actually had its own version, well, it predated, so I guess the other way around, but in 1930s, there was the Hollywood Production Code, the Hayes Codes, which were, um, similar to the Comics Code Authority, a self-regulated censorship body to, uh, mm-hmm. prevent film from being overly, you know, violent or sexual. Um, yeah, and then in music, it happened, it was like the 80s and 90s with, mm-hmm. like, it was Prince's Purple Rain, Right, And then after that, I mean, there's probably a lot of our listeners who will remember this. And then after that, you started to get the parental guidance stickers on the outside of CDs. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. So what I'm trying to establish is that violent media has always been a thing. Uh, and different mass-produced accessible mediums, uh, film, comics, music so on and so forth, have been sort of scapegoated as media violence, which has been, like, looked at as a cause for violence in society. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I also, just to sort of, like, reiterate that, to go back to the aestheticized uh, violence article by Bruder, I felt this quote kind of summed that up really well, which is, Embedded within both the political and popular culture's tendency towards an aestheticization of violence is a mobilization of the image which Arjun Apadurai connects specifically to post-industrial culture. He notes, people, machinery, money, images, and ideas now follow increasingly non-isomorphic paths. The sheer speed, scale, and volume of each of these flows is now so great that the disjunctures have become central to the politics of the global culture. And this I wanted to say specifically because this idea of post-industrial culture impacts a lot right like this is how we talked about where the division of high culture and kitsch comes from is that mass-produced post-industrial works are considered kitsch so comics fall into this post-industrial category of a very quickly made mass-produced accessible item and so this is sort of like We've always had violent imagery and art and literature, but it wasn't mass produced. Mm. So the culture, the cultural reaction to it now, now meaning since post industrialism, um, is has to do a lot with the fact that we just produce media at this volume that is like not been rivaled historically, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's an idea that I thought was, like, important to highlight because it comes up so much in, like, every conversation we have about comics, basically. Is is the that that comics are a popular medium yeah. and therefore become victim to these kind of accusations? Yeah, and specifically that connection to, like, 
post-industrialism, which I think is sort of like this really important cultural turning point in how we like deal with media. Okay. Okay. So now I'm going to switch tacks a little bit. So I've been talking mostly about um, aesthetics of violence without like talking about actual subject matter. And I've been talking about sort of historical reasons for this excess and also like why comics kind of get marginalized for it. So now I want to talk about some research that I think is really interesting about trauma in comics. And most of this deals specifically with nonfiction, so autobiography and documentary comics. But this also can be extrapolated to refer to fiction narratives. It's just usually the research lies more in autobiography and documentary because that's like Really, those are like very uh, popular genres of comics, right? Mm-hmm. So, the central point I want to make here is that um, comics have this unique sensibility about them that makes them sort of perfect for talking about trauma, talking about witnessing uh, tr- like devastating events. This is from Hillary Shute's Graphic Narratives, which I believe I have cited previously on this podcast in the Autobio episode. Um, mm-hmm. Graphic Narrative establishes what I hear writing about uh, Marjane Satrapi, term an expanded idiom of witness, a manner of testifying that sets a visual language in motion with and against the verbal in order to embody individual and collective experience to put contingent selves and histories into form. The graphic narrative brings certain key constellations to the table, hybridity and autobiography, theorizing trauma in connection to the visual, textuality that takes the body seriously. Um, So she goes on to say, Images in comics appear in fragments, just like they do in actual recollection. This fragmentation in particular is a prominent feature of traumatic memory. Um, So that's like really, really important that I'm going to like kind of drill down on is that comics are this medium that are uniquely suited for depicting traumas because the actual uh, physical, technical sensibilities of the medium mimic what traumatic memory is actually like. So this, uh, this is another, this quote is from another article I've talked about before, which is Comics and the Chronotype, Time-Space Relationships and Traumatic Sequential Art by uh, Harriet Earle. Um, mm-hmm. Earle kind of sets up, she talks a little bit about traumatic memory um, and the complex relationship between trauma and time. And she writes, in many cases, it is one of the most noticeable symptoms of a traumatic rupture that the individual becomes to use novelist Kurt Vonnegut's term unstuck in time. Their sense of personal chronology is severely disrupted. Um, So again, this idea that comics, because they are fragmented, because they are a medium that uses time in a very unique way compared to other mediums, they fit like what a traumatic memory actually feels like. Mm. So comics then is a form in which time cannot move in typical chronological patterns by the very nature of its form. Whereas in film, the viewer sees one period of time at once in comics, the reader can see all the panels on the page or double page spread simultaneously. This fact alone alters the way in which comics as a form works on a temporal level. Spiegelman goes on to define comics as an essentialized form of diagramming a narrative movement through time. Um, 
so like when you look at a comic page, you're reading by panel by panel, but you can see all of the panels at once. You can read the panels in different orders. You can go back yeah. and reread. You know, there's like different. It's not the same as a film where you don't have any control over what's being shown you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like in a in a comic book, you can flip through it. You, I like I like the idea of seeing um, past events and future events at all at once on a single page. I think that's an interesting observation. Yeah, exactly. I I don't have the I forget where I've read this, but people have talked about the fact that like. Even when you have it in book form, especially, the future is on the next page and the past is on the page before. So there's like this unique time relationship that you as a reader have. Um, mm-hmm. So this is like such an interesting idea to me that like because comics are this unique medium that use time and space in a way that other mediums can't, just can't, they become this like perfect tool for people to make stories about trauma like their own trauma obviously these are talking about autobiography but trauma in general um Mm -hmm. this is also something that uh is talked about um hillary shoot who wrote graphic narratives which i just talked about has another book called disaster drawn which is about documentary comics which are as you might suspect comics that are non-fiction documenting uh historical events usually we're talking about war Okay. Mouse gets talked about a lot in all of these Mouse by Art Spiegelman because it's sort of a mixture of a documentary comic. Yeah, it's his, it's his father, right? Yeah. So it, like, blends this, like, sort of documentary with autobio a little bit with, like, general fiction. Um, so a lot of analysis about kind of aesthetic violence and autobiography and trauma and documentary, a lot of those kind of talk about Mouse. Mm-hmm. This is something that I thought was like really important and really interesting when we're talking about documentary comics. So comics that are about war, about say the Holocaust, about like nine eleven, about like these big historical events, right? Um, mm-hmm. Cartoonists cede the pace of consumption to the individual bu- viewer, an issue of ethical significance when the work in question is visual and traumatic. The three, the freedom to control one's pace in comics presents an important distinction from film in which, say, an image of death may either go by too quickly, obviating scrutiny and attention, or linger too long on the screen, forcing an uncomfortable, and even perhaps manipulatively so, confrontation for the viewer. So this idea that when a, when a director is making a film, they're controlling or an editor, whoever, they are controlling how long you look at each image. So a documentary that's in film form about an event may, for, you know, whatever reasons that the director or the whoever has, force you to look at an image of death for a long time. Or they may go by it very quickly, and those have, like, different intended effects that manipulate the viewer. But comics, the reader controls how long they look at an image. So mm-hmm. this is be- so this becomes an issue of like ethics, right? That you are drawing this image of something violent and you are giving it to the reader to control how much time they spend with it, um, whether they linger on it or whether they move past it very quickly, which when you're drawing something that's very traumatic is like kind of a significant thing, right? Yeah, this is making me, I'm thinking a lot about um, March when you're talking about this, because mm-hmm. it also sort of falls into that category of historical, but also memoir. 
because the author was there during the civil rights march. Right. Um, but they do, the artist does depict other historical acts of violence around in the 60s. Yeah, exactly. And so this is um, very important to the idea of witnessing, which is something that comes up a lot in all of this writing about documentary, um, which witnessing being, you know, recording the traumatic event as it happens or afterwards, um, and how the difference sort of between photography and drawing this is also from Hilary Shute's book, Drawing Through Its Manifestation of Marx Offers Its Own Kind of Thicket of Time. Berger writes of drawing as forcing us to stop and enter its time. A photograph is static because it has stopped time. A drawing or painting is static because it encompasses time. And I wanted to contrast that with this quote from um, Regarding the Pain of Others by Susan Sontag, which is a book published in 2003 about... Um, war photography and the ethics of war photography and she writes harrowing photographs do not inevitably lose their power to shock but they're not much help if the task is to understand narratives can make us understand photographs do something else they haunt us so i wanted to bring that in to kind of talk about this idea that a comic because it's a narrative because of the unique sensibilities of drawing because of how comics have this relationship with time, they offer a way of witnessing that is maybe can compel people to understand an event in a way that a photograph, like a static image, can't. Even if a static image, a photograph, like, can evoke in us a sense of, like, outrage or disgust or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And this is sort of reflected, shoot writes, Comics grammar exhibits the legibility of double narration and stages disjuncts between presence and absence and between word and image in order to pressure linearity, causality, and sequence to express the simultaneity of traumatic temporality and the doubled view of the witness as inhabiting the past and present. Comic, ju- comic journalism's aesthetics ask us to consider how modes of knowledge are formed and transmitted. So that's, like, another idea that's, like, really important is that um, comics kind of offer this ability to deal with traumatic memory, deal with witnessing these terrible events, deal with violence in a way that is, like, honest and relates to how actual human memory works. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, So I just wanted to, like, I kind of, I, I kind of, <laughs> I kind of went around a little bit so I just what I wanted to kind of do was sort of um look at not just like uh why comics are considered why comics specifically are considered violent and um kind of that relationship and why like certain media in general gets sort of marginalized as violent um but also sort of talk about some of the like ethical uh considerations of violent work and this like what is to me a very interesting field of research about comics being a medium specifically that is well suited to witnessing and documenting and recording violent traumatic events. And, um, this is a thing Mm. that, uh, has a, like, you know, just to kind of like reiterate what I said before, it does have like a, we do have like a history of violence in, um, our society. Um, 
And this is a quote also from, to kind of like very, very briefly go back to, um, to that book I mentioned earlier about video games, uh, violent games, rules, realism, effect by uh, Gareth Schott. This is a good quote, I think, that kind of summarizes that relationship. Um, Aesthetically, there exists a long artistic and literary attraction to demolition, damage, and the signals of attempted obliteration of spaces and structures that once contained the energy of life in the form of inhabitation of commerce. In 1953, Pleasures of Ruins by Rose Macaulay presented a history of ruins lust, evident in 18th century European art and literature. The dissitude of a ruin or vacant structure becomes a vehicle for imagination or play, suggestive of a past life, but like the inevitability of death, the potential of all existing structures to stand as remnants of a past of a past world at some point in the future. So really, I just want to kind of like get home that idea that violence is not a new thing in the media. Uh, there is not any one media that is more excessively violent than any mm. others. I mean, there are genres that are, but not like a medium. And then that comics are a tool that can be kind of used for violence in like a specific and interesting way. Cool. Thanks, E. Yeah. So now it's time for my segment. I don't have a name for th- a fun name for this segment this time. Uh, how about everybody's education love it in my segment i wanted to mostly talk about the way that violence in the media becomes the scapegoat for violence that is enacted in schools um specifically school shootings started a lot of conversations around um blaming uh, media to cause children to be violent, um, specifically uh, the tragedy at Columbine, which in 1999 sort of spurned off a conversation about violence in music mm-hmm. and violence in video games. Um, so, like, a lot of video games were blamed. Marilyn Manson was blamed um, for these teenagers who decided to go to school and shoot people at their school. Mm. Um, And so I just wanted to try to start to address how violence in the media is treated in these kind of conversations around children. Mm -hmm. So my main source um, that I'm going to be starting out with is a book titled Media Violence and Its Effects on Aggression, Assessing the Scientific Evidence. It's written by Jonathan L. Friedman in 2013, and the book is an overview of research on violent media's effects on the aggression of children. So what he does with this book, Friedman, is he goes through basically every research study, like very specific scientific research study that has to do with violent media and its effects on the aggression of children. Mm-hmm. So the when we started out with the introduction of this, I did talk about the definitions of violence and the definitions of aggression. Right. And in this book, every research study, everyone comes at it with their own biases, right? So how does a child exhibit aggression? Mm-hmm is something that is 
can't be pinpointed, right? Do you want, need the child to punch? Do you just need the child to shout loudly? Do you just, you know, so everyone sort of has their own sort of biases in the research study. And also what media is violent. Yeah. So like a lot of these research studies are using films and some of them are just using like cowboy films with shooting. And like, it wasn't until the seventies that really films were showing blood. Mm -hmm. Right? you. So a lot of these movies would just have someone just go bang, and then the person would just fall over dead. Yeah. With no blood or hole or anything like that, right? Yeah, and that's interesting, too, because the um one of the main points in that aesthetic, aestheticizing violence, um you know, they do talk specifically about westerns, which are, like, a uniquely American genre, and which are considered yeah. the most, like, violent genre, actually. Yeah, so that's the, they. A lot of these research studies use westerns. Yeah, the basic conclusion that this book does. I'm going to sort of go through the chapters, but really, that what this book does is it says there is no definitive proof that media violence affects the aggression of children. Mm -hmm. Some research had a minor, teeny tiny little effect. Some had zero effect, and some had like. Of the adverse reaction in which seeing violence cause their subjects to be less aggressive. Mm. But basically his conclusion is just it, there is absolutely no correlation. And part of the issue is just the way that there there's just problems with the research. Yeah. So the first problem, this is a quote. The first problem is obtaining information that will generalize to the general population. It is important to understand that these are descriptive studies. They are not trying to test a theory or assess the effect of one variable on another. Mm -hmm. Rather, they are trying to describe the relationship, if any, between exposure to media violence and aggression among real people in the real world. Right? So yeah. research gathers information on only a tiny percentage of the people in the world, hoping this will reflect all people. Mm-hmm. And so, like, no one should suggest these studies are all people, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah, and it's just, like, you can't say this one film ref re represents all media violence, right? It's just, like, it's, that's just an issue with the research. Um, another issue is that you, your researching um, is not concrete variables. So another quote, you cannot simply ask people how much violent television they watch or how aggressive they are, because most people cannot give an intelligent, meaningful answer. Like so, someone measuring aggressiveness is like is extremely difficult. Someone isn't going to say, I am extremely aggressive because I watch a lot of violent <laughs> television. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so that's like if you were doing like a survey, mm -hmm. right? So that's another issue with this. So another issue is contamination. Um, another quote, an especially serious problem is that, is that the measures of an express to violence of an express to violent media and aggression may not inherently be independent. Uh -huh. They can contaminate each other, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you are an aggressive person, maybe you just watch more violent media, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, do they actually relate? Yeah. I mean, I, I all this is to say is just doesn't, it just, the research just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work out very well because correlation does not indicate causality, right? So right. just because someone watches violent media, there are so many other 
variables to human existence. That you can't just say this one thing causes this one human behavior. Yeah, and this is not, that's kind of like the whole thing that um, I was kind of talking about is that it's sort of backwards, right? The the idea that um, that the the media violence is causing violence and not just a reflection of like a broader societal uh, violent society. Yeah, we're specifically talking, because if you're talking about so much of this research happened after, post-Columbine. Yeah. um, In that people were just trying to find an answer to just this horrible, just a horrible thing that's like difficult to even start to try to comprehend. Mm -hmm. People were just trying to find reasons. Yeah, actually, the, um, the the book, the Violent Games book, they talk a lot about Columbine because that was a, obviously a big factor in why video games kind of became a, a, a like a, a scapegoat for this act. Yeah, it was specifically Doom that was tied to. Mm-hmm. Um, so just moving on, so like media violence and experimental research. So if you were trying to set up an experimental research, this is from the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the ideal way to test the effect of media violence on aggression would be a long-term experiment in natural settings. It would consist of randomly assigned a large group of very young children to diets of television and films. Some would watch a great deal of violent programs and movies, some would watch a moderate amount, and some would watch little, and some would watch none. They would do this for many years, during which the aggressive behavior would become assessed at regular intervals. Later, their behavior as adults would be assessed in terms of both aggressiveness and criminality. If those who were exposed to more violence were also more aggressive and more likely to commit crimes, the causal hypothesis would be supported. Mm -hmm. If this does not occur, this would not be supported. This experiment, done correctly with sufficient numbers of children, with great attention to detail, and with great measures, would end the debate. This experiment cannot be done ethically. <laughs> all, for, all sorts of ethical, legal, and practical reasons. We cannot assign children to these conditions, and we could not enforce the assignment, even if they were, we were willing to. We do not and should not have the kind of control over the lives of others. Mm-hmm. So, again, this comes with the... I mean, we were just talking about ethics within art, but it's just, like, ethics in which to do, like, a very real scientific study to, to really... And the debate of whether media violence affects ag- aggression in children is impossible. Mm-hmm. We cannot do the kind of study that would actually end this conversation. Right. Basically, he just keeps going on through every si- single type of research study, every single type of subject and media, and he just breaks it down. And it's useful in the sense that people love to poke holes. And people believe in these theories, right? right? People get an idea, they want it to be simple, they want an answer to something that's just extremely horrific, and they just want to be able to point their fingers to something. Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, I I think it's important to note, too, because we did talk about this in episode four, we talked about Wortham, and, like, if you go to the APA, the American um, Psychology Association's website, um, their page on, like, media violence... They uh, do like link studies that t- like claim that uh, exposure desensitizes you to violence. Like that's their official stance. 
Yeah, and it's it's extremely important to like this book does is actually look at the studies because mm-hmm. some studies that prove that violent causes children to be aggressive. I mean, one of the examples that he says that had a positive effect, right? So it positively, the violent film positively affects child child aggression, mm-hmm. right? But in the sampling, it was like I don't. It was just a few kids, and if you show kids a movie that's just gently pleasant and then you show kids a western and it's exciting yeah and then this what they did in order to see if the children were aggressive is just have them play <laughs> if they're watching something that's exciting of course they're going to get amped up yeah but is it aggressive i mean if you i've worked with kids a lot if you put a bunch of kids outside someone eventually will get hurt does that mean that they're being aggressive, or does it just mean that they're excited? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, you just can't, what is aggressive, right? So you can say, oh, this study found this, mm-hmm. but just like what we are doing with this podcast and what we're continually talking about is you actually need to look at the context of the study. Right. I think it's so important to not just look at the results, but actually how these researchers arrived there and a lot of the things the thing is is that a lot of the research that comes post columbine does arrive at this thing because they're entering into these scientific research studies with a predisposition to to fulfill a hypothesis Mm -hmm. and that's just not how science works all right just a sort of a final summary um In sum, the final results of this research have been inconsistent and generally weak. I conclude that overall, the results of the longitudinal studies do not support the idea that viewing violence media causes aggression and might be considered evidence against such effect. Mm -hmm. And then he does, um, so chapter 9, Friedman goes into... We're still talking about media violence and its effect on aggression, assessing the scientific evidence. Mm-hmm. Chapter 9 is titled Desensitization. Does exposure to media violence reduce responsiveness to subsequent media violence and or real violence? Mm-hmm. To quote, Most of the research on the effect of exposure to violent media has focused on the possibility that it causes aggression or crime. A somewhat different but related idea, which I shall call the desensitization hypothesis, is that exposure to media violence causes people to become callous or indifferent to violence. And there is very little attention in the way of research to this idea. And this is an idea that we talked about before. Yeah. Um, Does media violence cause people to become indifferent to real violence? Quote, When people see a real act of violence, we hope they will respond with concern and do what they can to stop it. We want them to feel that violence is bad and that people should not commit violence and that they themselves should never be violent. So what he talks about is the habitual effect. People who see a lot of violence in the media are less impressed, sensitive to other violence in the media. Um, So his conclusion for this section on desensitization is, however, even though there is some habituation in media violence in which... So habituation is when people see a lot of violence in media, they're less impressed or sensitive to more violence in media. So a lot like what you were saying, E, is that people just continually up the ante Mm -hmm. of violence, right? Right. 
So what he's saying is that while there is habituation, so there is more, you are less sensitive, you can see more violence, and this is true, like, I don't watch horror movies, so any horror movie is freaky to me, but I do have friends that love horror movies, and then they can see, like, more aggressive, like, slasher films, which would be horrifying to me, but I'm not habituated to it. Right. So that's what he's talking about. But what he also says is that there is no evidence that this carries over to responses to violence in the real world. As noted earlier, there is not evidence that heavy viewers of television are desensitized to real-life violence. In short, at the moment the evidence does not support the desensitization hypothesis, there is little to no evidence that exposure to media violence causes desensitization to real violence. Mm-hmm. Rather, what little evidence there is, is generally argues against the desensitization hypothesis. Yeah. So I just, I keep reading this and I keep hammering at this, but it's so important to me. Yeah. I feel like this is both of <laughs> us really... this episode. <laughs> huh? That's both of us this episode, like, really hammering. <laughs> yeah. It's just so important to me. Because I don't, t- I don't really have any... Um, sources for this, mm-hmm. but something that you see a lot is harm the harming of adolescents for the media that they love. Right. right? So whether it's m- music that could have violent themes, or um, enjoying horror movies, or drawing, you know, drawing pictures that could be disturbing to adults. Right. It's just so important for me to say over and over again that media violence does not carry over to how a person reacts to real violence. Right. So towards the end, uh, chapter 10, Mm -hmm. he just says again that the evidence does not support the hypothesis, right? Yeah. Um, He does say that when he talks about research with politicians... There's often the comparison between of media violence to advertising. Mm-hmm. To quote him, since advertising affects attitudes and behavior, it seems obvious that violent programs should do the same. One congressman noted that companies spend billions on advertising. If television has no effect, why would they do this? Are they stupid? <laughs> he asked whether he should stop paying for television advertising when he campaigns. There is no question that the media are very powerful in many ways. It would be foolish to suggest otherwise. Advertising does work, and political advertising can have an enormous impact on the outcome of an election, although bad ads can hurt the candidate running them as good ads can help. Mm -hmm. There is, however, a vast difference between advertising and programs or films. The difference is that ads have a message, a clear, unmistakable message, which is to buy the product or vote for the candidate. Right. The people who see an ad know its purpose. If they do not, if it, it, if it is not absolutely clear, if it is, it is not a good ad and probably have no effect. Mm-hmm. When people see an ad for a Ford, they receive the message that Ford is a good car and they should buy it. When they see an ad for a political candidate, they receive the message that he or she is a good candidate and the opponent is a bad candidate. Mm-hmm. These ads may or may not contain information. Films and television programs that contain violence are not designed to convey the message that violence is good or that people should engage in violent acts. They do not contain information that is likely to convince anyone of anything. They do not contain explicit message in favor of aggression or violence. They are just entertainment. Mm -hmm. The programs are not meant to be persuasive, just popular. 
So it should not be surprising that they have no effect on people's aggressive behavior or on their attitudes towards violence. Now, that is that is like a really interesting point, too, because I feel like that's sort of like also the big difference between because, uh, you know, again, we're talking about physical like person on person violence. But like there is like a media impact when it comes to like issues of like societal violence and representation. But in those cases, there is a message for advertising. Yeah, but what I mean is that, like, um, if a show is uh, sexist, then there's, like, a message in the show that's, like, being, you know what I mean? Like, that's, like, different. Okay, okay. Because <laughs> I, what I mean is that, like, um, if, if, you know, you're surrounded by uh, sexist media, that does impact a person's, like, attitude about being sexist, but that's, like, a different... And that's, like, a form of violence, but that's, like, not... Uh, um, that's, like, a different thing. I mean, I skipped over it, but there is, like... I mean, propaganda is real. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to, like, differentiate it, actually. Like, propaganda versus... Yeah. So, there is propaganda, and there is... I mean, something I haven't mentioned yet, but it is important to to caveat and when we're talking about Friedman, is he does talk about... He does reference good guys and bad guys in movies Mm -hmm. and thinks of that as a good thing, that usually you have a hero, you have an actioned hero who is enacting violence against a quote-unquote bad guy, Uh and how that is like a positive representation of violence. Hmm. And I do think that's important to call out because... I mean, I'm happy that he did all this research, and I'm happy that he looked into this, because basically, when I was saddling up to start this episode, I was like, I'm going to read a lot of scientific research and try to assess how the context of these research conclusions, right? Right. Um, so I'm glad there's, that he went through them all and did all that work for me. But I think it is important to think about the biases of believing in good guys and bad guys. Right. Um, because... Oftentimes in North America, which is the context that we're talking about, good guys are cops and bad guys are criminals, Mm -hmm. right? But the percentage of criminals, quote unquote, who are convicted of crime are men of color and women of color. Right. And so to consider a criminal a bad guy is already not a position that you want to be in as a culture. Right. Um, And then that also starts the issue of all cops being considered good guys allows corruption and violence within our prison systems. Yeah, like that's an oversimplification. Yeah. So whenever I see bad guy, it's like a sort of a red flag for me. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that is a good, like, caveat to bring to attention. Yeah. So I do want to say that that's that's sort of where this person is coming from, but that's also where a lot of people are coming from. Yeah. Um. So it's a sort of a conversation that I do want to keep bringing up. Yeah, yeah. So he sort of has a long section towards the end, but trying to figure out... Um. Here's a quote from Friedman. This is on the last one of the last pages of this book. Mm -hmm. Finally, it is important to remember that the research that I have reviewed dealt almost exclusively with the effects of fictional or fictionalized programs and films. 
There has been almost no systematic research on the effects of exposure to real violence or to media coverage of real violence. Hmm. So I think that is extremely important, right? So we are very specifically talking about fictionalized media. Mm -hmm. Because that was something that you mentioned before in that um, it's... It's just starting now um, the um, harmful effects of seeing real images of real violence perpetuated in the media. It's like very different from fiction, which by quality of it being made up tends to fall into more like of a stylized uh, depiction. Yeah, and I think I think there is like. Um, a very real delineation that we make in our minds Mm -hmm. versus something is real versus something is fake. Mm -hmm. I think even if we're the most engaged in a film, if we're the most engaged in a comic book, we know that it's fake. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of the main thrust of my argument was I just want to support in the end, this Mm -hmm. educational segment is student centered. And so I want people to be as armed mm-hmm. as they can be to protect the children and teenagers of their lives that media violence does not affect aggression, mm-hmm. period. But I do have a few more articles. I have four more articles. Um, one of them is titled Reactions to Media Violence. It's the Brain of the Beholder. Um, it's a few scientists. It's a neuroscience research study and done in 2014 so this is after the previous book that i was just talking about and what this one is specifically talking about Mm -hmm. um is showing violent media to pre-selected individuals some are aggressive they've shown that they have been aggressive in the past um and some to non-aggressive controls just from the normal, quote-unquote, healthy population. Mm-hmm. So they documented the brain, the blood pressure, and behavioral mm-hmm. responses during resting baseline, and while the groups were watching my- media violence and emotional media that did not portray v- a violence. So basically their conclusion is saying that aggressive individuals had lower relative glucose metabolism. Mm-hmm. So here's the thing with <laughs> neuroscience articles, is they really are just very specifically saying, like, we saw these portions of the brain receive more blood activity, and when a portion of your brain receives more blood activity, that means that is something that's being responded to with the stimulant, right? So what they're saying is that... Mm-hmm. Let me say this again. Aggressive individuals had lower relative glucose metabolism in the medial orbital frontal cortex correlating with So this correlates with poor self-control and greater glucose metabolism in other regions of default mode network, which are pre-cannuous correlated with negative emotionality. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So when aggressive individuals (laughs) watched violent media, Uh the areas of their brain that had poor self-control and negative emotions had more activity. Okay. So they're not going to come to these conclusions, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> they're not going to say what this means. But I think it is important, right? In order to enact violent acts, you those people have poor self-control. Uh-huh. 
But really, the conclusion is that media that studies of media violence should factor into debates about the the impact of media violence on public should be, if you are already a demonstrated aggressive individual, okay, you may be affected by media violence. Okay, that's all this article is saying. Right, it's just just saying. The people who are part of the study need to be researched beforehand. Right. Yeah, and I am curious how they define like like a proven aggressive I'm I'm thinking that it's abusive people. Mm. People who have been abusive to partners. Okay. Um I can reread the article, but I believe that I believe it's actually they're working with people who have been convicted of things like that. Okay. That makes that makes sense. These are adults. Yeah, yeah, not okay. children. Oh, okay, okay. That's what I was missing. This is that con- Yeah. I think it's helpful to actually literally talk about a neuroscience research paper. Yes. Because they are just doing a study. Yeah. They aren't giving dramatic conclusions. Because studies should not have dramatic conclusions. Yeah, that's... All they're saying is that there's just a little bit more blood in, in the orbital frontal cortex. <laughs> right, right. Because <laughs> that's what they... That's the result. Right? Yeah. And I think it's important to know that this is what research studies are really like. Yeah, no, I think this is, like, a really important article to, like, have in the podcast. I'm going to be moving on now, away from the research studies. Uh-huh. But... The basic thing to know is that there is never one answer to the human condition. Yes. And people across time have been trying to find answers to why humans have certain behaviors. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's going to be a huge amalgamation of causes and effects. And it's just never going to be... A simple... Like, universal. I can never give you a simple sentence to why someone is violent. And and sometimes it's just hard to be like, there is no answer. Yeah. It's just hard to accept something like that. Yeah, which is kind of what I was talking about earlier. The idea of, like, quote-unquote media violence being sort of like a general term that people use. Because they just want a cause. Mm Mm-hmm. So this next article, this is a 2015 article, it's titled Media and Violence, Does McLehan Provide a Connection? Okay. So in this paper by Jane O.D., the argument is, it's not the content of violent media that incites aggressive actions, but the socioeconomic conditions. Okay. So it's sort of examining the cultural context of post-modernity. And looking at media as exposure to violence rather than the cause. Right. Um, So this paper analyzes theories about communication with electronic media and whether its cultural impact causes violence. Okay. So it's less the content of the media that incites aggressive actions, but the socio-structural conditions that they engender. Okay. Okay. So it argues that media, no matter the message, is a compelling influence on society. Uh Uh-huh. So what she's ta- sort of talking about is that the there's more violence in postmodernity because there's an emptiness to consumerism. Okay, well... And that we are less emotionally invested in acquired attributes. That I mean, like, okay, that ties into what I was talking about earlier about the, the, the post-industrial. But I, I, I feel like that falls into um, people's general biases about mass media. 
For sure. It's just falling into general biases because, um, so the arguments that she's talking about is that electronic media does not allow you to have a hard-earned identity. And therefore, if you're more identityless, it could be more of a cause for violent behavior. Uh, I I disagree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. I and it feels like you can't just like will yourself to not I mean there's there's research with evidence out there that says otherwise, so. Yeah, no, that just that sounds a lot like everything I've said about the idea of a post-industrial culture being more violent, which is because of like how much media there is out there, but like if Yeah, that's you, exactly if, what she's saying. If you look back though, if you look at history in the Western <laughs> world, it was not exactly a violentless utopia prior to industrialization. <laughs> it just super wasn't. <laughs> I think that it's just that like our modern conception of what constitutes violence and what we have access to has is like different. That's all. Yeah. And I think it is hard because a lot of this is it once this is from an educational theory journal. Mm -hmm. And it's just it's educators trying to find answers to school shootings. Right. I mean the it's 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 extremely it's something that needs to be studied. We need to be talking about this as yeah. educators, right? Yeah. Um so I do think that the origin of wanting to find answers to how to reach children is a good place to want to be thinking. But I think I just I disagree with the with the theories and conclusions that this author has come up with. Yeah. I'm now going to move on to two articles that are of this vein. Mm -hmm. um, so one is titled Violence in Art Education. It's written 2000. Um, it was written after the school shooting at Columbine High School. Uh-huh. Um, this article has some good points, but it's also written in the context of a confusing time where people are trying to find answers, and that includes blaming the media. So this article talks about how violent people are socialized to violence. They undergo, quote-unquote, brutalization, which is a theory, a human condition theory, including suffering violence, witnessing, and being coached in how to use violence. They become belligerent, and being violent preempts being hurt. So you become a violent person in order to prevent being hurt. Mm -hmm. um, so you learn to become a violent person through a number of stages. And the final stage is about enacting violence to get notoriety and fear-filled respect. The self-image is enhanced through violence. So this does talk about um, the idea of identity and self-image and sort of correlates being a violent person being feared as a creation of a self-image. Here's a quote. All art teachers are for positive self-image. But they often forget that a strong self-image can be constructed through socially negative means. Mm. And this is something that Wortham talked about, too. Right. In that being violent is antisocial, right? Mm -hmm. So this article goes on to say that art education can intercept the process of violentization. Quote, you can't guarantee everyone a perfect family, 
but you can't, could guarantee people a perfect education. And that art education is a human, humanistic education. Uh-huh. Quote, the inclusion of the arts indicates that the school is probably concerned about human values and diverse learning styles and talents. The arts give teachers an unguarded view into who into what students are thinking and feeling. So art teachers should exam need to examine the imagery their students create. Mm-hmm. Um, so the example that the paper uses is a student who draws swastikas. I need to remember that this is from 2000. Swastikas have become a terrifying reality in our visual landscape at this point. Yeah. Um, but before, and I'm sure some of us have memories of this, it was just something that teenagers would draw, white teenagers to draw to get a rise out of each other. I mean, it's antisocial, right? And what this paper is saying is that imagery should be watched, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily merely suppressed, Mm -hmm. right? So the art teacher must discuss the imagery with the student, try to understand it, and try to get the student to understand where her or his imagery leads and what it says to their own lives and fates. Right. Right. So this is trying to stop violentization. Mm -hmm. And I do think that this is something that art teachers are very, they're really positively situated in which to talk to students. Mm -hmm. And I think it is interesting in which this paper is talking about violence. um, And it does specifically talk about racism and the embedded in embedded racism of students in schools mm-hmm. um because you can't just talk about violence without talking about the violence of the entire united states of america's history right. which is of racist violence yeah so the conclusion is finally violence is evil it is absolute violation of human rights whether you interpret those rights by a secular or religious code Mm-hmm. Yet, as Hannah Ardent told us, evil is banal. We are all part of the problem. If we can use our art teaching to examine what our students are thinking, to counsel them, to direct their thinking to healthful, peaceful ends, and we find means to establish through art that life is special and meaning-filled, then we will be part of the solution. Yeah. Um. So that last article was talking about working with students who may become violent. And then this final article is about students who have possibly witnessed traumatic events. And there is one um, statistic in that approximately 90% of people will be exposed to at least one traumatic event in their life. Yeah. And trauma is something that can be extremely common in children, in schools. And so... This article is about how art education can mm-hmm. um, play an important role in preventing de- devastating effects of trauma by fostering resilience through art, by asking students to focus on their strengths. There's a quote. School violence over the past decades includes shootings, bomb threats, and bullying. The issue of societal violence and school aggression has educators, political leaders, and communities across our nation alarmed. Understanding the trauma associated with violence can inform art pedagogy and foster resilience in youth. 
Educators must be mm. sensitive to students' reactions to societal violence to provide students with healthy, lifelong strategies for dealing with pain and tragedy. Yeah. After experiencing an act of violence or other devastating event, it is normal to feel frightened, confused, helpless, overwhelmed, nervous, horrified, uneasy, and sad. Students who are victims or witnesses of violence may feel the world is unsafe, unpredictable, and without meaning. But resilient children usually have four attributes in common. Social competence, problem-solving skills, autonomy, and a sense of purpose and future. Positive emotions such as humor and hope for the future have also been found to foster resilience. Art is a meaning-making endeavor that develops creative problem-solving, flexibility, and resourcefulness. It addresses a variety of perspectives and requires persistence and vision. Yeah. Themes such as humor, identity, life cycles, patterns, and transformation can be addressed through art. There's like uh, quite a few examples of how art mm-hmm. can be have a therapeutic process. Um, art was um, created by children who are refugees. There's all sorts of examples um, for creating art for children who experience natural disasters. Empirical research on trauma from natural disasters indicates that creativity may help individuals learn from the experience and better prepare for future stresses. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of um, examples like um, uh, fires. They talk about Katrina. Yeah. And how art is a meaning-making process that can help students process tragic events and make sense of their world. Right. Um, But there's a few final uh, conclusions to this article. And again, you can read this. um, We'll have links in the show notes. But the following considerations guide my work with art and resilience for young people exposed to violence. Give children opportunities to visually express themselves, but don't require that they relive or retell the traumatic experience. Listen and affirm, but do not try to solve their problems. Focus on the individual's strengths and assets, and use them as a source of ideation for art making. Guide them to visually articulate sources of strength and joy to help overcome trauma. Finally, find ways for your students to give back to the community in some way. So this approach enhances meaningful artistic creation and creates a foundation for stealing as a cumulative positive construct for fostering resilience. I want them to develop the attitude, I survived that. I can survive this. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it sort of ends. I'm trying to end on a positive note. No, thank you. That was I le- that was very good. I enjoyed it. I'm very tired. <laughs> oh, that's uh... Fine, that's fine. Is now time for our segment, Letters to the Editor. Do we have anything to talk about in the segment, E? We talked briefly about talking about, like, societal violence. Because, like, what we've talked about is, um, like, a very specific form of violence. And I don't want anyone's takeaway to be... Because I feel like... The c- people sometimes use the conclusion that uh, violent media does not create aggression in people to get away with making things that are um, like racist or trans misogynistic or like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because that's like a different thing because yeah. those are examples of societal violence and those societal violence can include physical violence as a part of it. But um, 
like more broadly that's different from like a drawing of someone just a person being shot like unrelated to you know what i mean like there's like a context there yeah yeah and you know that is sort of part of what the the previous article was saying where it's actually a red flag that you want to talk to if someone is using imagery that is antisocial that is violent that is like racist that could i think what i'm saying is that there's a difference between the creator and the consumer exactly yeah yeah but also i hesitate because i have not done um research on propaganda but it is true that propaganda is real right yeah um the propaganda that's racist propaganda and um transmisogynist propaganda etc etc has real effects on culture yeah i just wanted to make sure that nuance was clear that like it's really important to understand that watching violent stuff or reading or whatever isn't going to make you a violent person but yeah it's like we're talking about a one-to-one relationship yeah exactly like that's not the same thing as consuming or creating sexist material or racist material or transmisogynistic or so on and so forth like those are different categories of and things. it's a, it's a ba- it's principles right it's those beliefs and principles that could that mm-hmm. propaganda could be ch- changing right exactly um or like if you're developing principles media can shift those principles um i'm literally just talking about someone punching someone on the street randomly <laughs> yeah yes like it's a- or something like that think yeah yeah Acts and i'm violence. almost and almost what you were saying before was that even considering certain media as more violent than others a lot of that media is popular media that's accessible to mm-hmm. people of lower socioeconomic status right <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so it's sort of trying to subvert what could be already uh, an ism, right? A classism or like a racism. Mm-hmm. If you say a certain media is bad, are you also saying the people who consume that are bad? Yeah. So uh, before we go, I wanted to, we want to make sure to mention that we are doing a live show in. December. Yes. Um, in Los Angeles. We're going to be doing it at the Comic Arts Los Angeles. Um, I don't know. We don't have a specific date yet, but the the show is December 9th and 10th. So if you're in Los Angeles, keep an eye out for that. We'll definitely tweet it and put it all over social media. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of fun. Um, that does mean that December next month's... Not next month. Yeah, shoot. Next month's episode will be a little bit late. A little bit late. It might be uh, uh, a couple weeks, about two weeks later than usual, because the reason that we have monthly episodes is that there's a lot of research that goes into them. So it's mm-hmm. it's going to be, it would be hard to research the live show and then also research a recorded show. Yeah, and I, uh, Kathy obviously is working a full-time job, and I am working uh, with a museum right now and also applying to grad school, um, so we're both sort of swamped at the moment. We are very fancy people who don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's super exciting, and we're excited to see and meet uh, our intrepid volunteers. Yes, um, yes! And... 
Uh, we'll probably do some audience questions. Yeah. Um, and I think it's going to be awesome. I hope you'll see you there. Yeah, it's going to be um, a lot uh, of fun. Another thing. I, I have another thing. Oh, okay. What's the other thing? <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, Drawing a Dialogue has a new website. Oh, yeah. Um, you can go. It's still comicarted.com. But you can also go to drawingadialogue.com and it'll take you right to the page. Um, I think it's beautiful. I worked really hard on it. Um, I hope you enjoy it. Join the mailing list. Yeah, um, no, the website is beautiful, and I love that we have you. drawingadialogue.com now. Yes, we do. <laughs> so you can just go to drawingadialogue.com. Yep, and you can get all the episodes and all the show notes, um, all the citations. When we say show notes, we mean citations for all the research that we do in this in this show, because that is extremely important to us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shout outs to all the people that we reference that we talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, and as always, if there's anything you want to email us, um, just uh, shoot us an email. I love when people send in comics. I love when people send in research um, or just questions. Uh, our email is drawingadialogue at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a Twitter. You can tweet at us and or follow us at draw a dialogue. Because drawing a dialogue was just too long. Slightly too Twitter. long. Slightly too long. Uh, so that's the only one that's a little bit different. Um, <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at Kathy G. John. You can follow me on Twitter at Ehecha, E-H-E-T-J-A. And I want to thank, make sure we thank Downtown Boys for the song uh, Wave of History. It's off their album Full Communism. It's the intro and outro of our show. Yeah. So, Kathy, what are you reading? I recently just finished a rewatch of Parks and Recreation. Oh, cool. Um, yeah. Um, I have nothing to say about that. It um, made me feel good watching it, and I cried. It's a, uh, it's a good show. It's very, it's very calm. It's very calm. Yes. I've been working a full-time job um, the last couple of months Yeah, that have have kept me from uh, reading a significant amount of books. Yeah. Um, um, so, E, what have you been reading? So, I... Uh, this is something I re- was assigned to read. Uh, this past month, I was in a creative nonfiction writing workshop, and... Um, we got a section from The Body by Jenny Booley, um, which is a really interesting book, and I'd love to have the whole thing sometime. We just read, like, a, a section of it from that's, like, posted online, um, where the whole book, the actual, like, pages are blank, and the whole book is actually written in the footnotes. So it's, um, like, footnotes on an invisible essay or story, essentially. And it's, like, really, really interesting and, like, really well done. So, yeah, I greatly enjoyed that. Cool. That was Drawing a Dialogue. Uh, Thanks for listening. And farewell to our intrepid volunteers. Ciao.